Welcome to the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. You're listening to episode three, which is being recorded the day before this podcast officially drops. I'm not going to lie. I am feeling a little nervous right now. Um, this whole project just came together so quickly, and I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who supported it even before the first few episodes were even released. But if you're just jumping on right now, uh, thanks again for listening. And if you haven't followed our socials yet, you should do that immediately. Uh, on Instagram, we are at Bad Chinese Teacher. On Twitter, we are at Bad Chinese Pod. And on Facebook, you can just search us up Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. I mean, you should definitely follow those because that's where I post all of the funny. Quirky things that come out of my Chinese classes at school、um, that make me laugh, and you should laugh along with me. <laughs> anyway,、uh, I'm Patricia, and as I mentioned before, I am a Chinese teacher, which in this day and age seems to mean a whole bunch of things.、Uh, sometimes it refers to being a classroom teacher. Sometimes it means being a private tutor. Or being a private tutor online, but it just seems like in this day and age, there's just such a market demand for learning Chinese, and there's just so many ways to fill that market demand.、Um, so, just to clarify, I when I say I'm a Chinese teacher, I am a classroom teacher. I teach at an independent K through 12 school, and I teach fifth through 12th grade, which is around、uh, makes the kids around 11 to 17 ish years old.、Um, and so, at my school, foreign language is a required course up until sophomore slash junior year, and the only other language Language we offer at our school is Spanish. So,、um, foreign language is definitely seen as like a main class, a core curricular, cl- core academic class at our school,、um, which is awesome because it kind of adds legitimacy to what it is that they're studying. So, like it's you know on the same level as like a history and math course, and they're being graded on it. It's not like you know a throwaway class, at least for most people.、Um, but the other the other side to this is that you know that your kids are there in part because they kind of have to. And I say that not because my students don't want to take Chinese、uh, or they're they're being Forced to take Chinese because that's definitely not the case. Like I said,、um, our school offers two languages, and so if they didn't want to take Chinese, there was there is an alternative.、Um, but I mention this because I I imagine a lot of、uh, the listeners to the show are adults who are maybe learning Chinese independently because you really really want to learn and that you're prioritizing it in your lives in some way,、um, and. I think upon after you leave high school, after you've been out of high school for quite some time, it's easy to forget exactly how much high school kids have to juggle.、Um, so at my school, kids take kids have about seven blocks per day. It's around like seven to eight academic courses per semester, which is like a lot.、Um, even if you compare it to like college, where at least at my college we had like four classes per semester, five if you're like truly crazy. But in, in high school, it's like what eight classes plus extracurriculars,、um, and so there's just a lot going on. And I feel like you know you can really only a lot of people really only like start nerding out over a subject like language、uh, once they become adults because when you're in high school when you're a teenager there's just so much to juggle so much that you need to learn and keeps you pretty busy there's not a lot of time to just kind of like pick something and be like、mm, I want to spend a lot of time just learning and studying this for you know fun basically everything kind of does feel like an obligation and and it's just more the struggle is not as much about learning the material itself it's about keeping on top of everything that you have to do、um, and so anyway today I just want to take a little bit of time to talk about my Job, and also why the podcast has the title that it has.、Um, when I was first announcing that I was doing this podcast, I had some very lovely, beautiful, caring.、Uh, Colleagues who saw the title of the podcast and were like, "Patricia, I want you to change the name of your blog because you're not a bad teacher." And I was like, "Ah, it's self-deprecating millennial humor. It's supposed to be ironic. It's don't take it too seriously."、Um, which 
to be fair, I feel like that kind of self-deprecating millennial ironic humor can be kind of excessive and annoying. So take full responsibility for that. Um, but there are actually a couple of real reasons why this podcast is named the way that it is. I did put some thought into this. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that as well as kind of uh, what my career kind of looks like so far if you're interested in that sort of thing. Uh, so where to start? Um, I graduated undergrad about five years ago in 2014. Um, I was an East Asian studies major, um, but I my, my my heart had always been pointed towards journalism and writing. And so when I graduated, I kind of had this like expectation that I'd eventually stumble upon a journalism job. Um, and and I just I don't maybe I just thought I was really optimistic, uh, but I knew that breaking into journalism, breaking into writing was just going to take time probably a lot of time. And so um, I was willing to kind of wait. But beyond just that, uh, right before graduating, as I was looking for jobs, um, I was honestly just looking for opportunities to get myself to Taiwan, uh, no matter what the job was. And so the reason for this is because I had spent, uh, during college, I just spent a lot of time traveling to Taiwan during the summers, uh, really falling in love with the place and really seeing myself just living there, working there. And so at that point, it didn't really matter what the job was. Um, I, I, in particular, had my eye on this fellowship, this graduate fellowship that my university, my, that my college offered um, at the National Palace Museum, um, which look, thinking back on it, I was actually very, very poorly suited to do because it was basically like for art history people, like it was like translation work, but it was mostly like art history, like museum curation. And um, the only thing I could bring to the table was like, hey, I love Taiwan and I can speak Chinese and that's about it. So um Clearly, I had very, very concrete plans laid out for myself. Um, but, but yeah, I was 21 at that time, and I was just really looking to get my butt over to Taiwan, uh, no matter the reason. And so I was working on that. Um, around October, uh, I had found out that there was a local private Christian school about 30 minutes away from my house. I was looking for like an emergency Chinese teacher. So this was like the school you had already started. Um, and I figured, why not? Right. I had no job, uh, no income, and I just desperately needed something to fill my time. Um, and, and I really didn't think it'd go anywhere just because I had thought that like, you know, given the fact that I had no skills and no experience and no life license, um, this was just going to be a very short-term temporary gig that I was not like the ideal candidate for this in any way, um, and that they just really needed a warm body to fill a, a, like, you know, a teaching position. And so I got hired immediately. I don't really know how, um, but but I was just kind of like, you know, well, we might as well take this job while we're here. It, again, felt like just such a short-term gig. And I feel like this part, part of the reason why I thought this way was um, because of my elitist university, like liberal arts college upbringing. Um, just because, like, I feel like a lot of the times when you when you're when you've been in that like you know stupid ivory tower like the idea of teaching is something that a lot of people do um you know very very on a very very short-term basis before they like go on to their real wall street jobs or whatever um and and i felt like this was one of those things because at the time i was like applying for you know other post-grad fellowships to go to taiwan um and really just thinking that I would not stay at the school for more than a year. I really, teaching was never something that was really in my purview, um, really, really part of my five or 10 year plan. Um, and, and again, not only did I, was this not fitting in my, 
not only was this not in my original plans, um, but I also just felt, again, like distinctly underqualified for something like this. So on the one hand, it was kind of like teaching was not really something that I was really planning to do. But at the other hand, I was like, I don't really think that I'm actually equipped to do this job at all. Um, and, and I think you could say that about like a lot of careers that you accidentally find yourself in. But I think teaching in particular, to me, had this weightiness to it, right? Like this idea of if you're going to be a teacher, right, with your set of qualifications, like what what are you even, you know, like, like, do you like, just like, if you, you really have the guts to like, to think that you can do this. Um, and, and that thought like just kind of was an underlying current as I was navigating through the first few years of my career. On the other hand, like I tried to temper it by being like, you know, at that point I wasn't teaching high school at that point. I was like teaching lower school. So like kindergarten through seventh grade and Mandarin class in lower school is kind of like the same way that we had music or, or art class. So it was kind of 20 minutes, two times a week, you know, it's n- none of that, like, you know, super intense immersive stuff that a lot of, like, elementary schools are doing. Um, it just felt kind of like, it kind of felt like as long as, for that first year at least, as long as the kids were learning something more than nothing, I was doing a good job. Um, you know, which which I think is a pretty fair ask, considering, like, where I was. But that was my first year. Um, the fellowship that I was applying for that first year fell through, and I came back for a second year, and that second year turned into a third year, and then a fourth year, and so on and so forth. And so as every year ended and a new one began, I just found myself constantly not just revising, but completely redoing curriculum year after year. And the reason for that was because I leave each year thinking that I did just a really bad job, and... Um, when I do a bad job with something, my first instinct is just like to throw the whole thing out and redo it all over again. Um, and so I was just really convinced that like as I left this year, I was just very, very discontent with what I had done. Um, and just felt that I was doing a really bad job, which when I look back on it, it, even now it feels like equal parts true and untrue. So um, when I was starting out, I was the only Chinese teacher in the building. There was no curriculum for me to work off of. There wasn't even, like, a textbook that I could follow. Because I had literally thought that, like, you know, whatever teacher I was replacing, she'd have, like, all this stuff that I just have to follow the textbook and, and, you know, be done with it. But there was really nothing. And so I was teaching classes at the same speed as I was trying to figure out curriculum or, like, trying to figure out how to teach. And I think, like, there isn't anyone who, you know, would expect someone under those circumstances to jump straight into a classroom and do an amazing job. Uh, you wouldn't expect them from, like, any any career, really. And And yet, because it was teaching, I felt this, like, pressure. I felt this weight that I needed to do an amazing job from the outset because it seemed like messing up as a teacher at any stage would be costly. Yeah, I had this idea that like this was like my students get one chance at this, right? They're seventh grade Mandarin teacher, right? They just get they get seventh grade Mandarin one time and the seventh grade Mandarin teacher will be me and they don't get to do it over. They don't get to do seventh grade Mandarin over again because their teacher was trying to figure things out as they were going along, right? Like I can say, well, you know, if I mess up one year, I'll figure this out later in my career or when I'm at another school or when I've had more training or whatever, right? Um, But my students, students in general, like they don't get a second chance. And if I mess it up because I'm treating my my kids like guinea pigs while I'm figuring out a career that I'm not qualified to take like that just felt so unfair to them and so that weight just I kept carrying that with me year after year thinking that like I you know I knew that like I was in a place where I should be allowed to mess up because I was just so inexperienced um but I also felt like I really couldn't afford to because the job that I was doing just felt so so important um yeah, because, like, these are kids, right? And it's not as if, like, you know, they're, they're kids. And 
around the second year I was teaching, this article came out on NPR that was entitled, and I'm I'm not kidding. It was titled, "Hey, new teachers, it's okay to cry in your car," which resonated with me on like many levels, but also didn't. If only because I felt like while I thought that like I wasn't doing a good enough job at my job, um, I also felt like it didn't seem that hard. Like this was very strange. There's this reoccurring theme that like you know I didn't feel like I was doing good enough, but also maybe it was because I wasn't like making myself suffer enough. You know, like I didn't know exactly where to improve. I knew that I needed to improve. I didn't know where, um, and so I just ended up sitting in my own vague sense of inadequacy for a long, long time. But, but anyway. The article has this one line that says, "Lots of jobs are hard, but with teachers, it's like, wow, I'm hurting kids because I'm as bad as I am." You get these exaggerated thoughts, like, "Well, what if I break my leg? That way, I get three weeks off." And everything about that quote, I felt so hard.、Um, I feel like a lot of this pressure came from like how critically I viewed teachers and education before I actually became one,、um, and so because like we idealize the classroom really, really easily, and it's really easy to say、um, this is how things should be because like everyone has been in a classroom at some point, right? Kind of like you know, kind of like how everyone who's ever been to the hospital now like knows how to become a doctor. It's like that same same kind of、uh, like you know illogicalness,、um, but there is a sense that you can. Legitimize this unreasonable criticism of teachers and schools and education because education is so important and no one can afford to mess it up because it's just so important. I mean, never mind the fact that teachers are paid horribly across the board because, but because their job is like so high stakes, teachers need to like push themselves to be to be to be amazing no matter the circumstances. And I feel like I put that expectation on teachers as a hypothetical concept when I was in college because I didn't actually know any real. Life teachers,、um, and the only the first real life teacher, the first real life example that I could apply these pressures to was myself. And I feel like even six years down the road, these pressures that I put myself are still existing to some extent.、Um, it's made better by the fact that in six years I've like kind of figured out how to do my job better, at least. But I still feel like I bear the guilt of experimenting and messing up for five whole years, and I still feel sometimes that I owed it to the kids who like eventually. Dropped out of Chinese or like left my class with bad feelings about Chinese because there were there were like a good handful of those.、Um, I feel I still feel like I owed it to them to have done a better job from the beginning,、uh, especially since you know this is still a job that I still don't feel like I deserve to get. And I feel like the most glaring piece of evidence for this was because I did not have a certification when I started, and which I th- I think is a very legitimate issue.、Um, And and I think one thing that needs to be understood is that getting certified to become a teacher is actually a lot harder than a lot of people think. And teachers who aren't certified aren't certified not because of a lack of trying.、Um, the first thing is that independent schools, private schools, don't actually require certification. So certification is primarily at least in the U.S. for public schools. Most independent schools, almost all independent schools, don't actually require certification. But I think most people would be hard pressed to say that good private schools in the U.S. have poor teaching. So that's the first thing.、Uh, certification doesn't necessarily automatically equal good teaching, nor does a lack of certification equal bad teaching.、Um, and the second thing is that certification, again, at least in the U.S., is not really a straightforward process.、Um, it's either you you figure out you want to be a teacher when you're an undergrad and you take your education courses and you do your student teaching while you're an undergrad. 
Or you're like me and you graduate from undergrad and then you figure out that you want to teach and then your only real option is getting a master's degree. Um, it's not like I had thought that you just like take one test or you take a bunch of courses and then voila, like you get certified. Um, there are in some states alternative certification programs that exist that do not end in a degree, but basically it just means that you go up to like, you know, some city. In this case, the city would have been an hour away from my house. Go during the weekends for like a solid year, take classes. Um, and it costs money. And the thing is, is that like, you know, those spaces are very limited. And also you can only get certified in certain high need areas. So for instance, if you want to become a social studies teacher, social studies teachers positions are very, very limited. And there's like way more supply than there is demand. And so it's almost impossible, at least in my state, to get alternatively certified for social studies because they just don't like, you know, they don't need that many more social studies teachers. And it also costs just a lot of money for something that doesn't even end in a degree. So it's a huge investment. And so I will be getting mine soonish, uh, but at this point, you know, with six years of teaching, it just really feels like a formality at this point. Um, you know, I've been teaching for six years, and then when I go and uh, get certified, I'm going to have to redo student teaching, which is it feels strange. It feels necessary, but also it feels strange. But at the same, it just you know just makes it feel like this is one big formality. But all of this formality, all this paperwork bureaucracy just definitely feels as if like, you know, even though teacher quality regulation is necessary and then it's important that there is like standardization to some degree. Like, I feel like a lot of this bureaucracy and, you know, hoop jumping is somehow born out of this like pre-existing belief that most teachers are not qualified. Um, again, probably because of this like judgment that people put on teachers because, you know, everyone's been in a classroom and everyone feels like they have an opinion. Um, but I feel like this is also a mindset that applies to a lot of like lower tier, lower class jobs. The best example of this is uh, is school bus driving, which my mom is a school bus driver and she has to retest for her license like every couple of years. And the testing for the license for school bus drivers is like really insane. Um, you know, it's just like, it's not like, it's not like if you have a regular driver's license, you, you can drive a school bus is the same thing. It's really, really rigorous and it tests stuff that just feels super unreasonable uh, when it comes to the day-to-day -day driving a bus. And the thing is that like, I remember when my mom was retesting for her license, uh, she was just so stressed out about it because the test, the test requirements are so unreasonable. And the killer was that like my mom is an awesome school bus driver like not just in terms of driving like she she relates to the kids so well her bus is like so so well behaved and so well organized and she's just so good at her job but you know because people have this pre-existing belief that school bus drivers you know are underqualified or don't deserve to have their jobs like they they have to jump through so many hoops to prove that they can do what they can do and so that exists in a whole bunch of careers teaching included school bus driving included and it's just not fair but um there's that issue. There's a certification issue, which I think is like probably the most legitimate of all the all the all the doubts that I had about like you know me working the job that I had. Um, but the other the other issue that I think will weighs on me more heavily personally is the idea of worthiness or like the inherent justice or injustice of me being able to be a Chinese teacher when other people like can't. Um, so the elephant of the room is the, is the fact that like I'm fluent in Chinese, but I'm not a native speaker. Um, like, obviously, I didn't grow up in a, a Chinese-speaking country. I actually didn't even start formally learning Chinese until, like, college. And to this day, my Chinese is fine and it's functional, but there's definitely a whole host of people who are way better at Chinese than I am. And so that being said, what business do I have calling myself a Chinese teacher? And I think this will be a question that will always prevail as long as, that I, as, long as I'm teaching Chinese. And I think a lot of listeners might have the same concern or question as well. So, um, 
And just to summarize real quick, like what my what my language background actually is. Um, so my parents are from Taiwan, and they came to the U.S. about two years before I was born. So my parents almost always spoke Chinese to me when I was growing up, but at the same time, I don't really remember a time when I didn't know English. So by the time I went to preschool, which was when I was four. English was already my primary language. I think it's just because I like I watched a lot of TV,、um, but yeah, I don't remember a time when I wasn't when I wasn't fluent in English.、Um, I actually skipped kindergarten because I could read and write pretty okay by that point in English. And、uh, the only remnants of learning Chinese that I remember by that age was like my mom making Chinese flashcards by hand for me and my brother, and like we never use them. I like distinctly remember the cardboard box that she put it in, and I would put it under my bed. That's like how little that we use them.、Um, so beyond that, I mean, usually again, if you're like coming from like an immigrant bilingual household, you'll probably know that you probably start out speaking Chinese when you're like a baby or a toddler, and then once you go to school, it's all over. Like you just lose everything because you spend eight hours of your day like with kids who don't speak your heritage language, and if you don't use your heritage language, like it's gone.、Um, and so I, you know, after after going to school, like my Chinese abilities, I could like list, I could understand fine, just like most you know Chinese Americans at that point, but I could not really speak. And reading and writing was like out of the question.、Um, and on top of that, I never went to Chinese school. And so, for those of you who are like fortunate enough to not know what Chinese school is, Chinese school is basically like extracurricular classes that your parents force you to take on Saturdays or Sundays, where you just go to like some church or some like college classroom, and like you have you know someone's mom that you know teach Chinese to you. Um, and there's usually homework, and there's usually tests, but they're not being graded on any of it, and you don't want to go. And so, I never did any of those classes. A lot of my friends did, and I think I, I would even bargain to say that like most, you know, upper middle class Asian Americans probably had Chinese school or Korean school at some point.、Um, but my brother and I never went to Chinese school, and I think it's because like my parents just like gave up on the idea a long time ago, just didn't think it was worth it. And also because oh, it was because it was because most of the Chinese schools in our area were Sunday mornings, and my parents were like, nah, we gotta go to church instead. Um, but at the same time, my parents would always try to encourage my brother and I to speak in Chinese more, and to that we'd just say "buyao" all the time, like "I don't wanna."、Um, and on top of that, whenever we'd go back to Taiwan for the summer, they like always comment in that very forlorn way that like our Chinese would get better once we were in Taiwan. But like when you're ten, that's not really something you care about. And so at that point, like you know, reading and writing, total lost cause. Like don't even don't even think about it. And so I think at this point, some like really dedicated Chinese parents would like look at my parents and be like, "Why didn't you at least try?" And I think you could probably say that about a lot of things with regard to how my parents parented.、Uh, in addition to not going to Chinese school, my brother and I never went to like Kumon or like extra tutoring、um, or like Asian nerd camp or whatever. Like both of us played classical instruments,、um, but it wasn't something that we were really forced to do.、Uh, I played piano. My brother and I played violin. And my mom actually said that we should quit violin because it was clear that neither of us liked it or practiced, and she wanted us to stop wasting her money.、Um, But at the same time, it's not like my parents were like the free spirited type, and they were definitely not like quote unquote American style parents. As if there were like a dichotomy between the two, right? You're either like a strict Asian parent or like you don't care about anything. Like that's that's dumb.、Um, but I just I just really think that like my parents didn't care what other families were doing, and they were super not into the idea of comparing kids, which I feel like is probably the impetus for a lot of Asian parents pushing the kids and, and making them do the things that they do because like so and so down the road is doing the exact same thing, and you have to keep up. My my parents. Like fundamentally, 
did not care about that. And so that probably played into um, a lot of what our upbringing looked like. And I think even despite the lack of like, you know, Kumon, Asian nerd camp, Chinese school, I think both of us turned out pretty okay. Um, but that all, all that said, uh, I ended up majoring in East Asian studies in college because um, when I was in high school, I started really trying to get into my Asian-ness in like a semi-meaningful way. So I grew up in an area with very few Asian people. Like I think there were like five Asian people in my graduating class of like 250 kids. Um, and so even in high school, like even as I was a teenager, my Asian-ness like seemed like a novelty rather than something that was really interesting. Um, there were like zero Asian studies courses in high school, which I think is pretty much the norm for most like American high schools. But there was just like no, like it was just American history, like three years over. And then Western history, like European history, if you wanted to take European history. But like Asian history, Asian culture, whatever, like it was not a visible thing in our curriculum whatsoever. Um, but at the same time, like I lived in this kind of like hippy-dippy sort of Northeast American town where like nowadays you would probably say that a lot of people like misappropriated asian culture pretty liberally like there were a lot of people who dressed up as geishas on halloween and like i think our high school or our middle school had like a quote-unquote zen garden um and so i was just kind of mad at that point that even amongst all this appreciation for asian culture where i was growing up um that i like a living breathing actual asian human being like didn't feel seen Right. Um, and so learning Chinese started becoming important to me, if only because it was made available to, available to me while I was in college. And I think I actually made a lot of bad choices during my first few years of college because it kind of felt like I was starved for information. Like I took three languages because I didn't have a chance to learn any of those languages before. Um, and you could probably kind of argue that my entire my entire major was just a result of me being starved for information at that point. So I um, started taking Chinese classes my first year in college. I started off in the heritage track, which is, I think, a thing a lot at a lot of colleges where like the you know intro levels of Chinese, you have like the your regular like 101, 102. Which is for like true, true beginners. And then you have like heritage track Chinese for kids who like can understand uh, Chinese when it's being spoken to them, but they can't really speak or they can't read and write. And so I started off in heritage track beginner Chinese 103, 104. Hope you're doing okay. Um, and, and even that class, even the heritage speaker class, like beginner level heritage speaker Chinese was a huge stretch for me because almost everyone else in my class could at least like write their name. I couldn't write my name. Um, I still remember like having dictation quizzes on the chalkboard. So it wasn't even like you had like a test in front of you. It was like everyone could see your errors like full, full out. Hated those. I kind of wanted to die. Um, and I remember my first few homework assignments took me like three hours each because I had to look up how to write every single character. Um, and the thing is like, what was even worse was that the people in my class were all like, CS like comp sci or like STEM majors who were taking Chinese because our school had like a language requirement um, and everyone else I knew who was thinking of majoring in East Asian studies like I was um, they were already in upper level Chinese or like they had placed out of Chinese because like you know apparently that's that's the where, you, where you're supposed to be when you're even thinking of becoming like an EAS major so um, I was so behind on the curve uh, at that point um, so that was my first year. And then after that first year, I studied abroad in Taiwan um, at National Taiwan University, where, again, I was somehow placed into a higher level class than I should have been. Um, by the way, this this program at National Taiwan University is the is ICLP. It's the International Chinese Language Program, pretty well known, uh, which I recommend to everyone if you can get someone to pay for it for you because it's really expensive. So I got my school to pay for it, but I did two, two months there. 
And I think maybe it was like the adrenaline of just being in Taiwan for myself for the first time. Um, but I worked my butt off that summer. So uh, classes during the summer was 8, 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. every day, which doesn't seem like a lot. But like for just one class alone, it was every night, like 15, 15 pages of reading that you'd have to prep every day. And like so you prepare the reading and then you go to class for like an hour, an hour and a half. And the teacher would just grill you with question after question on the text. Right. Not even like vague questions like, how do you think about this? It was like literally what does it say on blah, blah, blah. Or like or you'd have to quote the past. You basically have to quote the the text like you know exactly and i found out it was just and i'd never i wouldn't have never done this previously but i just figured out it was just easier to memorize everything word for word which was basically what i did so like my studying regimen and again like this happened only that one semester in taiwan and like never happened ever again my work ethic did not improve just because of this one thing it was just like this one summer of insanity that i just studied this hard but um i'd basically wake up at 5 a.m every morning um to review the text And then I'd listen to the audio recording as I was walking to class. Like, uh, listening to audio recordings is something that I would have never done. Like, even when I took, like, J Korean and Japanese courses in, at Wellesley afterwards, um, where they're like, oh, here's your CD, you should listen to it. I'd never listen to it. But here, I, like, listen to the audio recording religiously, um, go to class, and then go back home, and then I'd take a nap for two hours, and then I would continue studying until, like, around, like, you know, 12 a.m., 1 a.m., um, to prepare the text for the next day. And And that was like every day for like two months. Um, and then on top of that, every week, at the end of every week, on every Friday, every one of us would have to write for each class, I think. Yeah, it was both classes. Um, a one-page, single-spaced speech on whatever topic we were studying that week. And we'd had to present it to the class. And, like, most oftentimes, we just, like, read it off the page. But, like, but again, like I mentioned in the previous episodes, uh, Chinese is not a language that's phonetic. And so if you don't know how to, like, if you haven't memorized the character, you won't know how to read it out loud. So that, like, just reading a speech off a page is, like, hard enough. And so it's been, like, I did that in 2011. So it's been, like, a good eight years since since that experience. And I actually haven't had a lot of time to go back and pick apart um, how they taught at ICLP because I do think it was very, very effective and very interesting how they were able to teach so much in such a short amount of time. Um, what's funny, though, is that I feel like our teacher just kind of gave up on writing quizzes. I think she gave us, like, one dictation quiz about two weeks into the course and never did it again because our entire class failed it um and then after that she just didn't care about us handwriting characters ever she just focused on us being able to speak and read um which i actually think really paid off because like imagine all the time you'd waste just from memorizing how to write characters in addition to like memorizing 15 pages of text every night um and so as a result of this i think there's always going to be a part of me that will always fundamentally not care about writing characters by hand, uh, which is, I think, sacrilege in the world of teaching Chinese, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Um, so anyway, I do my summer in Taiwan. Um, I go back to, I, I go back to Wellesley and I start taking heritage track, uh, 300 level courses, which is like, you know, the highest level you can take. I started running out of Chinese courses I could take for my major at that point. Um, but again, I found myself being probably too underqualified to take any of those courses which like i seem it, it seems to be a pattern of me like accidentally finding myself in places that are not supposed to be where i was and then having to make up the difference somehow um which i guess maybe that's the reason why i was able to learn that quickly um so it's it's been a while since i've been in formal classes been about five years and so my chinese abilities have kind of been back and forth since then like i i was looking back at a at a final paper i wrote for one of my last classes uh, literature class that i took and i was just like man i can barely 
barely read this and I can't I can't even imagine a world where I was able to write a paper like this um but uh, I took the the actual proficiency test so if you guys haven't heard of that it's it's mostly a test that's directed towards teachers um but if you've taken like Chinese school in the past you might have actually encountered this at some point but it's a proficiency test um that you have to take for licensure in some states and so I scored better than I thought I would um well past the point of the requirement for becoming a teacher which to be honest is actually pretty low for Chinese or like most other like non-figs languages so French Italian German Spanish um languages and and I feel like and I'll probably need to take the HSK uh, eventually, for those of you who don't know, the HSK is kind of like the uh, like the equivalent of the TOEFL for for Chinese, and so I would say that if I were being honest, uh, passing HSK six would be challenging but doable for me. Uh, I, I just don't want it. I just don't want to do it. Uh, but it'll probably have to come up eventually for me, and so I'll probably have to do a little bit of studying for that. So if you like care about that sort of thing, that's kind of where my Chinese level is at. So all that said, I think I'm at a point that it's considered pretty good for a student. But, like, as a teacher, I mean, uh, the inadequacy is real. Like, I mean, all things considered, I think it's a little unfair because with, like, you know, figs, languages, like French, Spanish, whatever, in middle school and high school, if you remember, if you guys took those languages in high school, most teachers are actually not native speakers or, at the very least, like, not people with, like, literature or linguistics degrees in that language, right? Um, But Chinese is kind of another story at this point. It's like... If you're teaching Chinese, at least amongst other Chinese people who, like, you know, they'll think this way. If you're teaching Chinese, there is, like, this expectation that you're an expert, right? And again, that this idea that, like, wow, if me, right, as a non-native speaker, like, you know, to, to call yourself a Chinese teacher at this point, like, you know, needs a gun, right? You, you really, you really have, you know, some guts to be, to be making that claim. Um, and, and that expectation, there's probably a whole bunch of things that, that play into this. And I think one of those things, like, from a social culture perspective, it probably comes from a place where, like, in Asian society um teachers even like in secondary school even high school are supposed to be experts you usually wouldn't have that expectation until like well into college where like you know you have legitimate research scholars who are teaching courses because they're the experts in their field but i feel like in asian society there that 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 expectation extends down to uh high school middle school and even to extent elementary school right you can see this in this in the assumption that some asian people have that elementary school teachers don't have to be as educated as high school teachers because the material that edu- that elementary school teachers teach is easier and like anyone who stepped into a kindergarten classroom at least in the u.s knows that that is like patently false um but at least in Asian culture, there's this expectation, there's this idea that teachers are supposed to be like just straight up vessels of knowledge. And the value of the teacher is not necessarily how they disseminate that knowledge, but how much knowledge they are capable of disseminating. And like whether or not the students actually absorb that knowledge doesn't actually really seem to matter. It's kind of like if you have a really smart teacher, you as a student have no excuses to like not to learn from them just from like breathing the same air as them, like, you know, Asia, right? Uh, so there is that expectation that, like, you know, from an Asian perspective, teachers are supposed to be experts. And if you're a Chinese teacher, you should be an expert at Chinese, right? Literature, whatever. Um, but also from, like, a much more surface-level perspective, if you're a Chinese person and you see the kind of, like, basic stuff that kids learn when they first study Chinese, like, you know, just really basic communication stuff, not, like, poetry or literature or anything, you see that and it's so easy to be like, yo, I could do that too. Just like, you know, people with, like, no English teaching credentials will go abroad to teach English, right? The only requirement is that you are fluent in English, although even nowadays, like, that that requirement seems to be a little iffy. Um, so if you're seeing someone like me who's not even, like, native fluent, you're probably like, 
why is this person who doesn't even meet the most basic requirements of native Chinese fluency even doing this job? And the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of people who aren't actually qualified beyond their fluency in a language who do try to teach Chinese and end up not being able to hold on to that classroom job for whatever reason. Like, there are also like Chinese moms who volunteer teach at Saturday Chinese schools for years and still struggle to find a job that actually pays at an actual school. And then, and then someone like me, like I waltz in here and say that I'm a Chinese teacher too, like that seems a little unfair. And you can say that, like, the advantage that I have is that I'm a native English speaker, which means that I can communicate with students and families more easily and that I'm, like, more in touch with, like, Western-style teaching methods and, like, all of that somehow makes me more qualified. But all of those things, to me at least, also do feel really unearned. Like, they're a mark of my privilege as an American person with an American education, which I'm actually pretty okay with, and I don't feel bad or guilty that I have these privileges because— those are the exact things that enable me to do so much more with my career and with my classroom. Um, but it also makes me feel really burdened that given the fact that I have these privileges, I also then need to prove myself that I deserve to be here. That like the place where I'm lacking that my privilege can't really make up for, which is like my Chinese ability, um, that I'm still good enough to like run with the big dogs. And then, if this weren't, like, complicated enough, like, you think about all the non-Chinese people who are learning Chinese because they want to, and they expect the best of the best when it comes to their teachers, which is, like, a really reasonable expectation to make, and I imagine that a lot of people listening to the show probably fall into that group. And then, if this weren't complicated enough, you think about all, like, the non-Chinese people who are learning Chinese because they want to, and they expect the best of the best when it comes to their teachers, which is, like, a really reasonable expectation to make. Right. So as I'm starting this podcast with the pretense that I'm a Chinese teacher, um, with the expectation that most of the people listening are non-native speakers who are studying Chinese, it feels very, very bold. Like, you know, your Chinese is still at this level and like you still, you know, that you are a Chinese teacher, like still have the guts to say that you're a Chinese teacher. You know, like I'm just thinking back to like just even the first two episodes in the show. There are two points that I was, as I was re-listening to the episodes, there were two points where I mispronounced the tones of certain words. The first being like uh, the title of the Chinese oratorio, uh, Men of Iron and the Golden Spike, the Chinese translation of is Tie Han Jin Ding, not Tie Han Jin Ding. I pronounced it the second way. Um, and, and that will like always stick out to me. And the second thing is, uh, again, that same episode with the Chinese oratorio, the, 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 the last name of the conductor was not Tai, it was Tai. And so those two things seem so minor and inconsequential, but those are the two things that, like, you know, it, it only feels more emphasized because, again, I'm running a podcast that is literally has that that literally identifies me as a Chinese teacher, and I'm making mistakes like that, right? Like, it it seems like the standards are just so high, um, and because putting yourself out there like this, like somehow conveys that you have the audacity to feel like you're an expert in the field, right? Like that if you have a platform, you must be worthy of that platform. And the thing is that that worthiness, whether or not you are good enough to like say that, oh, I have a podcast or like I have a YouTube channel, like that worthiness just feels so, so ambiguously defined sometimes, right? And which, which just makes me feel like this whole idea of gatekeeping, who 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 has the who has the validity to say that they are you know xyz is is kind of dumb um 
Because number one, particularly when it pertains to this podcast, because number one, if I was really confident in my Chinese, if I was really that confident in my Chinese teaching abilities, and if my interest was purely in Chinese linguistics and acquisition, then this podcast would be one of three billion Chinese teaching podcasts out there, which I intentionally didn't do because A, uh, that's what I do 40 hours a week already, and I honestly don't love language acquisition enough to do more of it here. And B, uh, what I think is far more worthy of discussion is everything that surrounds language learning. Because like every other subject, there's always a meta about learning, like the story of what happens inside you and your heart and how your world changes as you're learning. And you get you get no better view of this than in high school when the where the acquisition of knowledge where the acquisition of knowledge is only one of like 10 billion of other things of seemingly equal importance happening to you at the same time. Just think about that for a second. Um, and, and to be honest, like, you know, I don't think, I don't actually think that adult learners are an exception to that. And I particularly don't think that Asian American adult learners trying to reacquire their heritage language in adulthood are an exception to that. Um, learning a language is so complicated, um, but it's also so beautiful. And I want people to have a place where they can step away from the pressure to attain fluency, to just be able to talk about the world around them and how complicated it is and how, how things are changing and how you're changing as well. The term bad Asian tends to come up, I feel, with a lot of adult Asian Americans around my age, particularly when it comes to language ability. Like, as if the inability to speak one's heritage language makes one, like, a quote-unquote bad Asian, which I think could mean a variety of things. Like, on the one hand, it's like being Asian also means being, like, a classic overachiever. So the failure of, like, not being perfectly bilingual already presents itself as some, like, huge moral or personal failure. But I think more likely it's this idea that, like, you didn't do your culture justice by learning to speak your language and connect with your roots in that way. And so I feel super fortunate that I've been able to spend much of my college years and my young adult life actively connecting with those roots. And my ability to do that only exists under really fortunate circumstances. Like, I had parents who were okay with me spending their money to study this in college, and um, I could travel to Taiwan frequently, and I accidentally landed a job at a really great school that allows me to share and expand and celebrate those things in so many ways. Um, but given the responsibility of holding this title of Chinese teacher that still feels like super undeserved, I feel like I've gone from being a bad Asian, which I was in college and high school, to being just a bad Chinese teacher. Just like there exists these like nonsensical but still very real feeling standards for Asians to act and do and know and speak in a certain way. I feel like there are these equally nonsensical but still very real feeling standards for me as a Chinese teacher. And they feel even more real and relevant than before because the choice to be a Chinese teacher is a choice that I'm actively making. It's not like these expectations are thrust upon me because just because I'm Asian. Um, I'm actively choosing to make this my career. And so if I'm choosing this, then those standards are something that I also signed up to to have as well. At the same time, though, like I'm 26 and I surprise myself with how I get closer and closer to these nonsensical unachievable standards every day just through experience and time. So it's not even as if like what I'm striving for is totally unreasonable. It just is not going to happen immediately. And I think the biggest hurdle for me is to try to see my role as this Chinese teacher um, as being less important and to convince myself that the stakes that I'm facing really aren't as high as I think they are. 
um, yeah, it's true that my students will only get, you know, one one shot at seventh grade Chinese class, and I get a bunch of shots at them. And so, you know, even that being the case, right, for them, like I said at the very beginning, it's like this is one class out of many. And my performance, my what I do as a teacher isn't 100% of what they choose to do with what how they spend their time in the classroom. There's so much that's beyond my control. And um, it takes patience and time and practice to to understand that I can't be in control of all of it all the time. Um, and on top of that, the classroom is an imperfect place. And that's how it's supposed to be, right? Especially the high school, especially the middle school, K- K-12 classroom, right? Like like I said, there's just so much going on in the classroom when you put a whole bunch of teenagers together that's not just about acquiring knowledge. And, and there's places to press into that beautiful imperfection that is so much more worthwhile than just making sure that kids learn Chinese good. Um, and the thing is, like, the stories in this podcast, I also hope will show how imperfect of a process learning Chinese in particular can be. And I know that, like, I'm not the only person who sees the gloss of the Chinese-speaking world, right? There are so many methods and so many ways to make it fun and so many reasons why it shouldn't be fun and so many programs and online classes and blah, 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 success stories to live up to. And it's easy to forget that, hey, everything takes time. And if there's something that come out of taking one's time, it's being able to notice all the interesting, cool, thought-provoking, life-changing things that come up along the way. And so with that, I just wanted to thank you all again for signing on to this podcast so early. Um, this is, again, the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. You can find us everywhere. And I really hope that you stick along for the journey because I think it's going to be a fun one. So uh, look us up. Make sure you are subscribed to wherever it is to, you listen to podcasts. Um, we are basically everywhere. Um, I think by now, by the time this podcast airs, uh, we should be available on Google Play. It's taken a couple of days, but we should be everywhere where you listen to podcasts. Um, if you've done that already, it's super helpful as well if you leave us a review i know that like every podcast mentions this but it actually is super important so if this is something you enjoy please do leave us a five-star wukushing the review um and write me a couple nice words so that we can keep this thing going um it really does mean a whole lot if you haven't already of course please also follow us on social media on instagram we are at bad chinese teacher on twitter it's bad chinese pod and on facebook you can search us up uh through the name of this podcast bad chinese teacher podcast uh after this week where we've had these three three crazy episodes you can uh count on us having new episodes every monday and if you found this podcast episode interesting you should do me a favor and share this with the people that you love uh so that they can also kind of join in on the fun so if you're looking for me you can find me on social media as well on instagram i am at patricia lu um, on twitter i am at patricia sq lu and you can find my latest writing at blog.patricialu.net um and so thank you again for joining us we'll see you next week Bye bye